The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. You know, I'm not saying that this is going to be a theme week because I don't really think it's a theme week. But there's going to be a common thread. And the common thread is comedy. We are going to have a great interview a little bit later uh, with a man by the name of Jeff Maurer. He has an amazing resume, just a real top five resume, this guy. Former worker at the Environmental Protection Agency, also a stand-up comic, also one of the first writers for John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. So as you imagine, we've got a lot to talk about, up to and including something that I was fascinated by, the idea of bureaucracy, and specifically how both stand-up, or sorry, uh, television comedy and government have very, very, very defined reputations about how their bureaucracy both works or doesn't work. We explore all that. We also have a big, big, big day today, actually, Wednesday, for Chuck Schumer, and specifically the fate of both versions of the infrastructure packages that are currently navigating through our Congress. We'll set all that up for you. And I'm going to do a a little bit of a recap on what's happening in Cuba right now and how Joe Biden is handling it. It's a bit of a personal thing for me, although I am not Cuban. I certainly have been ensconced in this issue for as long as I can remember being politically aware. We will go through all of it. But first, and so the time to hesitate is through. Such is the word emanating out of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on infrastructure. Now, I've told you on this show that there are two pathways to this deal, and they both might be able to exist side by side. But both of them are tenuous. And Chuck, this week, if not today, is going to see which, if either, is real. The first is the bipartisan plan. A reminder that this is a plan that was 
so sure of happening that a few weeks ago, Joe Biden called a press conference to celebrate that the deal had been struck between both parties. And considering how shaky it looks now, maybe they should call and see if they can get their deposit back on the balloons. The 11th hour negotiations about how this $1 trillion package will be paid for has left it in limbo. And here's Schumer trying to bring it back to reality by demanding the Senate vote on ending debate of this bill, something called cloture. I'm going to take a brief moment right now to let everybody know that this is not a radical concept. Cloture is used all the time. Now, you can make an argument that it's not great that it's used all the time, that elected officials should not be voting on ideas before they know the actual legislation that will eventually, you know, be on their permanent resumes. But that does not stop Congress from using tactics like this, usually because if it were up to Congress, they'd never get anything done. They just negotiate and eat lunch. The reality is the Senate is burning daylight. The closer you get to the fall, the more everyone starts thinking about midterms. And if big deals, big deals for which you're not immediately calculating whether or not you're going to get primaried for it are going to happen, then we're rapidly coming to the end of that window. This bipartisan infrastructure deal is close, but not done. And like I said, nothing in D.C. gets done before the 11th hour. So for Schumer, it's a fairly simple idea. Let's roll the clock forward, see if it's meant to be. But here's the flip side. A bipartisan deal, especially these days, is very, 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 very fragile. The Republicans are already a little sore because they believe that the Democrats weren't being fair about one of the key pay-fors in the initial framework, and that was the concept of giving the IRS more money to chase down lost tax revenue. Here's the short version of that fight. Both sides in the bipartisan deal agreed to give the IRS more cash to hunt down cheats. Then, according to the GOP, they found out that the Democrats were planning on renegotiating how much they'd give to the IRS in their own reconciliation bill that will get no Republican votes. Basically, the Republicans felt that this was not negotiating in good faith because you're basically making a quote-unquote sacrifice that you're planning on on rewriting in uh, a couple weeks after. Blah, 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 blah. The point is that this stuff does take time and to kill it with an arbitrary deadline where you're asking people to start drawing lines in the sand is both dumb and stupid. And according to Politico, as of this recording, the bipartisan bill has no chance, including some of the negotiators on the Republican side that are actually writing the legislation of this bill, by the way. They are some of the people 
that are saying, look, we're not going to we're not going to go along with this gambit from Schumer. Either we're going to get this legislation done or we're going to vote against our own interests to show you that you're not the boss of me. Okay. Cool. Well, then let's imagine that happens. This whole thing goes south and we live in an America where Kanye West can drop a new album this week, but both major political parties can't agree on building bridges. By the way, shout out to anybody who's getting tickets for uh, that Kanye listening party in Georgia. That means that the Democrats basically take all the framework that is being worked on for the bipartisan bill, control C, control V, into the reconciliation bill, which again, will only need 50 Democratic senators voting in unison to pass. But if this ends ugly, and it ends because Chuck Schumer wanted to be too aggressive on the negotiations, Will the moderate senators, Manchin, Cinema, vote for that reconciliation package? I don't know. By the way, Schumer also has a deadline for those Democrats to see whether or not they even have a reconciliation bill. Chuck has said that they have till the end of today to come together on a rough outline for a $3.5 trillion infrastructure package. Either way, by Thursday morning, the die might be cast on this particular chapter, which, by the way, is fairly crucial to Biden's entire legislative agenda one that may or may not lose one of its key cogs next year uh, around you know November and the intervening time is going to be all dominated by a bunch of races where everyone's going to be scared to vote on anything because they won't want to possibly screw themselves out of their phony baloney jobs which means Biden's legislative legacy as president either in his first term or forever, could be known by tomorrow. Let's talk about Cuba. If you're new to the podcast, here's a quick primer on me, Justin Robert Young. Growing up in South uh, Florida, Cuba was the primary foreign policy issue I followed. It's hard not to when friends and their families have dealt with the reality of a totalitarian regime and you watch weekly displays of poor souls riding mounds of trash across an unforgiving ocean only to attempt to race the Coast Guard for a shot at freedom. It leaves an impression on a young lad. To give you context, I was in high school when Elian Gonzalez brought some of these issues to a national stage. Now, I'll show my biases here. I'm an absolutist on two things when it comes to Cuba. First, I will always be sympathetic to the pain of the Cuban refugee community and by proxy the pain that they feel for their family and friends on the island. Second, the Castro regime 
is a failed totalitarian enterprise. Its continued existence punishes the people it governs. So there we go. Them's my cards. Now, a week ago, something truly amazing happened. The people of Cuba took to the streets and protested the government. This, put simply, very, very, very rarely happens because being caught doing something like this puts you at risk for being disappeared in a white van for as long as the government decides it needs to show you and your neighbors that such actions are hazardous to your health. Now, the reasons for these protests are multifold based on what I've been able to glean. Among the reasons, the government couldn't keep the lights on in some neighborhoods. They don't have adequate equipment for COVID vaccinations. There are food shortages. The pandemic crippled the Cuban tourism industry. And then there's also a very complicated monetary currency situation that best I can tell boils down to they used to have two currencies, one good, one bad, and then they combined them and now they just have one bad one. Still, the underlying problem, in the opinion of your humble narrator, is that the Castro regime, now being operated by a non-Castro, is a failed totalitarian enterprise. But what do you do about it? Popular cry that you hear is to end the embargo, a.k.a. restrictions on almost all trade to Cuba. This is something that predates Castro, but got far exponentially worse as Cuba became more aligned with the Soviet Union and nationalized U.S.-owned entities without compensation. Now, when you hear about the embargo, you might hear about it in a very black-and-white sense. And that's everybody's right, you know, to have their own opinion. But for me, the embargo is a very complicated issue. And for the record, I've heard many arguments for and against the embargo from even the most diehard Castro haters. Here's the argument for lifting the embargo. Even if the regime benefits the most from lifting the embargo, meaning that no matter what, because of the economic setup in Cuba, further engagement by the United States and trade will always benefit the regime first, even then, you are going to get more money, medicine, food, and technology into the hands of the Cuban people than they have now. And after all, haven't these people suffered enough? If we care for them, then let's care for them. And here's the argument against lifting the embargo. Yes, the Cuban people will have more food and medicine, but does it even matter? when they're ruled by a government that can and will take it away from them for disobedience? 
What Cubans really need is freedom. And prolonging the life of a group that de denies them of it gets them no closer to it. Here's something you're not going to hear from me. I don't know the answer here. I have, I have a gut. Here's what my gut says. My gut says is that I don't think you can end the embargo without getting significant kickbacks from the Cuban regime. Up to and including normalizing the ability for some of these people to to emigrate to the United States. Because by the way, here's a thing that did happen. When, when, I, when I mentioned before that there were people riding mounds of trash into Florida, that's because there used to be a policy called wet foot, dry foot, which was, you know, to put crudely, the fast pass for American citizenship, but only available to Cubans. Meaning if you escaped and, and you are not allowed to leave, you are not allowed to get out of Cuba. So you have to do it in secret with uh, minimal equipment. And that often meant, you know, flotillas like tires. And I say mounds of trash. That, that's what I mean. Anything that floats, you got to go that 90 miles from Cuba to Miami. If you got to Florida and, and, I, I remember seeing people literally swimming, trying to outswim a Coast Guard boat because if they pick you up while before your feet can touch the sand, you're going back to Cuba. And they're not exactly going to throw a party for you. But if your feet touch sand, then welcome. <laughs> Uncle Sam gives you a a, 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 a a high five and then a low five. And then you guys do the kid and play dance. And that's it. That's as fast as it took to become a, a, a U.S. citizen or at least, you know, uh, protected under the law. You wouldn't get deported. Obama ended that in 2000 and uh, uh, it, was, it was in his second term. And, you know, you wonder why Florida has tilted a little bit more red. I don't remember that being the kind of thing that, that has been talked about all that much. Still, this is complicated. Again, I, 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 I would like, if the embargo was lifted, and I'm sympathetic to that because ultimately it's like, well, how, how long does it take? But then again, maybe the, 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 the point is with the embargo now, look, we're, we're watching people in the streets. We, we haven't seen that in decades in Cuba. Now's the time to keep up the pressure. Now's the time to put more pressure on the regime. They are losing their grip. You could make the argument that the, the, initial run was based on this cult of pop uh, personality with Fidel Castro. He dies, his brother takes over, and at least he kind of looks like the guy you really liked. Now some other ding-dong's in there and nobody's going to starve their family for the ding-dong. 
For the cult of personality, uh, you know, maybe some greater good. But this guy, I don't know. So what is Biden doing? Biden is looking at the issue of remittances. Financial aid given from exiles in America to Cuban citizens via wire transfer. Like everything in Cuba, the government gets a taste on this as well. Before they pass it on to the people that it was being sent to. Still, remittances are a small gesture. Probably too small for hardliners who would like to see Biden be more destabilizing to to the regime up to and including, you know, for listen to some, military intervention. And then there's also the political reality, which is why you listen to this show. A reminder that Miami Cubans are indeed a pivotal voting bloc and part of the reason why Biden lost Florida in 2020 by three points. By Sunshine State standards, a blowout, as things are normally within a point, maybe a point and a half. What Biden's actions are here will affect how feasible Florida is for him. He obviously saw his strategy in 2020 of trying to play predominantly to the Puerto Ricans in Central Florida It didn't pay off for him. He only won Miami-Dade County by seven points, which might sound like a lot, but, you know, he won Broward County just to the north of it, where I'm from, by close to 30. That's what you need if you're a Democrat to win Florida. So this is something that will affect him in 2020. How it will affect him? Well. We'll just have to wait and see. I'm going to do something new here. And uh, uh, I want to recognize some people that have come on to the Patreon. As you might imagine, that as the political calendar slows down a little bit, uh, so does the Patreon. And and I have... uh, I've seen the exit surveys. I know it's nothing personal. I know that everybody is uh, reconfiguring their financial existence through coming out of the pandemic and uh, maybe recalibrating exactly how much political content that they want in their lives. So I, I understand, but I do want to recognize the people that are joining on to the PX3 Patreon team and so I'll, I'll do my best to shout some people out here. Max, the ginger scoop and Brandon Thomas. Thank you for coming on. They both came on at the $3 level. That means they get the bonus episode on Monday morning. They get the bonus episode, our late edition on Thursday. We're by the way, uh, uh, based on what we set up here, we're going to know the answer to, to most of that on the Thursday episode. So if you want to get that, now's the time to sign up. But thank you, Max the Ginger Scoop and Brandon Thomas for coming on board. Uh, You have no idea what this sort of financial uh, uh, support means to this show. Notably, 
the idea that uh, uh, I can spend a little bit more time working on some of these episodes. And that's what you're going to see on our next episode, our Friday episode. We're going we're gonna to go a little meta. We're going to talk about political comedy, specifically an issue that I love to talk about, and that is Dana Carvey. I'm going to make the argument that Dana Carvey is the greatest political comedian of all time. I will convince you, and that'll be that. But this is something that I've worked on for the past few weeks, and it's a lot more kind of raise the dead, world's greatest con, uh, dog and pony show produced. A little slicker. But this is because you guys give me the ability to do it. You guys finance the travel. You guys finance the production. It's it's you. It's Max the Ginger Scoop and Brandon Thomas. Thank you guys. Head on over there to TakePoliticsSeriously.com if you'd like to get those bonus episodes, if you'd like to support the show. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. Our guest today has a great substack called I Might Be Wrong. He is a former employee of the Environmental Protection Agency and one of the original writers on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver on the Home Box Office channel. His name is Jeff Maurer. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about bureaucracy. Because I, I feel like you have a very unique perspective on it, uh, uh, specifically in two very, very, very specific industries that have their own various versions of them, colorful though they might be. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about you so people can understand exactly how yeah. you got there. Uh, uh, how did you get into working at the Environmental Protection Agency? Uh, well, I was. A young twerp uh, in Washington, D.C. I was uh, 24 and I had just gotten back from the Peace Corps and I was basically uh, turning in resumes all over town. Uh, I, yeah. I knew I wanted to work in government. That's what I'd studied in, in college and grad school. So I knew the the area I wanted to work in. But um, specifically what I wanted to do, it was kind of going to be a uh, first person that hires me situation. <laughs> and gotcha. that is how it went down. Um, it, it, I, I mean, I worked there for a long time, so I have since become pretty passionate about environmental issues. You know, it would not environmental issues were not at the very top of my list when I was 24. Um, but EPA Wait, happened a- after to be the, the Peace Corps. How do you end up in the Peace mm-hmm. Corps if you're not into environmental stuff before that? Well, you know, I wasn't like anti-environment. I wasn't, I wasn't like strangling pandas with my bare hands and things well, like that. Sure, I was, sure, well, sure. I, would, I, I was, if I had been able to pick an agency at the time, I would have picked the State Department. That's, that's sure. That would have been. No, my no, first no. Choice. Wait, hold on. Now I want to go back to the to to to, to the Peace Corps <laughs> thing. I'm just like, like, is it just for the chicks, or like, you know, do they have great like like catering? Like, like, why do you go to the Peace well, Corps? I, well, I'll tell you, I was married when I went in, so it was it was definitely not just for the chicks. Gotcha. Um, it was, you know, I was a, a young, idealistic do-gooder, you know? Uh, yeah. Reality had not yet uh, crushed my face into the dirt with its, you know, <laughs> cruel boot. Uh, and I, so, you know, I wanted to go out and do good things. And uh, so, yeah, Peace Corps. So the Peace and, Corps uh, was the way to go. Peace Corps was the way to go, yeah. Uh, or so I thought. Anyway, 
uh, I got back to DC and was yeah, that, was, was that, was that, a, was that an alienating experience or, or did you, did you oh, not get God, everything you I, wanted out of it? You know, you should ha- have me back another time. I'll tell you the whole Peace Corps story. Cause okay. your Peace Corps story is supposed to be like, Oh, it was so great. It was, we, we saw the world and we, you know, experienced new cultures and uh, that is not the experience I had. I, I honestly, it was not a great experience. Um, this just the work is kind of garbage sometimes for me yeah. there are other people who are in the peace corps and they have very meaningful experiences they do very meaningful work that was not the case uh with me yeah. um so anyway less than less than uh, less than thrilled and so okay so you come out a little bit a little bit jaded but uh you know you want to work <laughs> in government what did you what did yeah. you studied in college uh as an undergrad it was uh political science and economics okay and then so in graduate school, international relations and with a, with a concentration in development economics. And I bring that up because I write about economics a lot on my uh, sub stack. So yeah. I, I feel the need to, you know, credential myself a little bit, say, you know, I, I, I <laughs> took some classes, certainly not an economist, but I call myself an economist sometimes. Sure. Enough, enough to know what the, what's going on. And so now you are, you're, you're, you're ready to plug in to the, the big federal government machine. You're putting resumes out all over town. Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the EPA is, is where you go. And that's where, uh, uh, you, you begin your journey amongst the, uh, you know, the, the, the machineries of our massive government. Uh, right. what was your expectation going in? Had, had you known people that had, had worked there before or worked in government before? Uh, did you sure. have any expectations? Um, you know, DC, when people think of Washington, DC, people who don't live in DC, they think of Capitol Hill. Um, yeah. sort of like if you don't live in New York and someone says, what's, what's New York culture? Like you think of wall street, right? So people yeah. think of Capitol Hill, which is its own culture. It's its own environment. Um, but there are, a lot of people in D.C., something like 20 percent of the D.C. area works for the federal government in some capacity. That includes contractors, I think. Um, it's ordinary people with ordinary jobs. Um, yeah. You know, most jobs are not, you know, some high level policy job. Most jobs are like make the website work, you know, yeah. answer the phone. Uh, I knew I knew a guy who like his whole thing was uh, cleaning federal offices. It was a cleaning company. My brother in law. Uh, worked for the Library of Congress for a long time. He did like video editing and stuff. A lot of it's really ordinary people with really ordinary jobs. You know, I, I, never, I never, I never, I never government DC. I never thought of it like that, but in, in a way it really does remind me a lot of Vegas in that, like at, at, a, at a certain <laughs> point. Not you, what I thought you were about to say. Well, yeah. When you know people that work in Vegas or live in Vegas, it is this, this like factory town, this bizarre factory town where the factory is this like very colorful mm-hmm. thing. But even if you just run a one hour dry cleaning, you know, off, yeah. you know, somewhere in Henderson, you better know how to yeah. clean around sequins because like, that's just the work <laughs> that you're going to, that you're going to get. And I guess that's the same thing where no matter what, even if you work at a bagel shop or, or, you know, like a, a cleaning offices, there's just elements to how you do it with the federal government or you're catering to a clientele that on some yeah. level you are connected to this beating heart. That's right. Yeah. LA is the same way. Everyone says, yeah. Oh, I work in the industry. And it's like, you know, where do you work? It's like, well, I do hair. I do hair and makeup. You know? Yeah. There are a lot of jobs that aren't movie star, but you're still in but, the but LA, LA is LA is a bigger town. Right. Like L.A. L.A. is there's just a lot more people. So it's like, yes, on some level, everybody is connected to it. But it's like much like New York, where there's a million people that are connected to 
theater right. or to finance or whatever. But like you can live mm-hmm. your entire life and maybe run into them every once in a while. Whereas like yeah. I would uh, Vegas for sure. And and I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my head around DC at some, you, you're going to throw a rock and somebody's going to have a connection to something, even if it's just, Oh yeah. My, 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 my yeah. niece babysits somebody's, you know, a, a young child or something like that. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's, it's just incredibly common to work in the government in some capacity in DC. I yeah. mean, a good way to gauge that is, you know, as a standup. And that's the other part of the story. When I was working at EPA, I was doing standup at night. You do clubs in DC. I had some jokes about working for the federal government and like those jokes work in DC. People get <laughs> yes. it. They either are feds themselves or they know other feds and uh, those jokes work. And then I go do them on the road and, you know, people in uh, Pittsburgh are like, what? What, what? are you talking about? What do you want? Seems like a weird job. That's interesting. Have you met the president? Uh, so, uh, uh, so you're working at the EPA, and and this is where we want to get into the the, the bureaucracy element of it, because uh, eventually you're going to go into an entire different field uh, where uh, uh, you yeah. know a different level of bureaucracy will will be there. So we need to compare it. Uh, when you get in, what is your expectation of how fast federal government works, and how does that match your reality? Uh, well, I don't think I had the typical expectation that people might have, because, of course, okay. the expectation is just that it's going to be horrifically bloated and it's just going to be desk after desk after desk of uh, people with nothing to do who are just sitting there, you know, collecting taxpayer dollars and doing nothing, you know, working incredibly slowly, things like that. But I had already lived in D.C. long enough. Again, my brother-in-law is, you know, longtime fed to know yeah. that eh, that's not really the case. It's um you know, kind of a pretty typical office environment, quite frankly. So what is, you know, where do you think that reputation comes from? Like, like where is the DMV? It's the DMV in the post office, because that is most people's point of contact with the government. And also it became, I got to blame stand-up comics for this a little bit. You know, it became a bit in the, in the nineties, you know, the, the DMV and the postal service were just like notoriously bad. Um, it's what you'd talk about if you were a standup. So it became the image of the government that most people had in their minds. I think, Oh, slow, inefficient. And you know, you probably have had a bad person at the post office. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, everything tends to be a little bit more complicated than the initial, uh, uh you know, blush of it, but for that reputation, I think also what what dovetails into it is like during the '90s, we had a lot of those stories with like the Pentagon spending five hundred dollars on a hammer and and anything that exactly. that like that matched the idea of like oh well it's just because people are lazy and have too much money like that's why they're right. doing yeah it. it's a, like not not it's not, a not trope. because it, it's it a, was like yeah a, a Lockheed Martin missive that like you have to buy X amount of hammers at this kind of price. Yeah, it's it's a it's a trope that people like, you know, wasteful, dumb, ineffective government. 60 Minutes has been running. Is it 60 Minutes that runs the fleecing of America? That's 60 Minutes, right? It's uh, a recurring sure. segment. Yeah, I think it's 60. It's one of those, you know, news shows. Uh, the fleecing of America where they, you know, look in a an entity the size of the federal government. If you look for a while, you're going to find something inefficient. And of course, there are some truths to that. You know, the. Yeah. <laughs> The $600 asteroids and stuff. Yeah, there are some truths to that. I mean, the inefficiencies that uh, people find tend to be real inefficiencies. Um, there was definitely an era, and I think we're 
kind of past this now, but there was definitely an era in which those inefficiencies, the, you know, $200 toilet, and well, actually $200 would be fine. $2,000 toilet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 200 is pretty reasonable. $2,000 no, yeah. for a toilet, 600 the, for an the, aspirin. Yeah. The, the yeah, million million toilet. toilet. Yeah. Those are real stories. It's just that I, I think that in people's minds, they thought, oh, the reason my taxes are so high is because of these $500 hammers. Yeah. When, you know, really, though nobody is in favor of $500 hammers, at the end of the day, that's going to be a rounding error in terms of your tax bill. Yeah. So, so, so your, your time in the EPA is just kind of like, uh, uh, you know, any, any other office job, you mentioned that you were doing standup at the time. Is there any like a uh, reaction to that? Because I would imagine that there's some folks that have jobs that are not federally paid for. That would be like, you know, like, I don't know, my, my, my boss might not like it if I were making jokes about our office as a standup. Yeah, that's a, you're not the first person to ask me about that. Cause it mm-hmm. does seem like, um, you could uh, get into some dangerous territory there. I got to say, they were always really cool about it. I mean, yeah. maybe it would have been really different if, uh, you know, my act had been really different. Maybe if I was like an edgelord and I was saying like really controversial things. Yeah. I, I, but, I, you know, I was just up there to make people laugh. And to the extent that I talked about the federal government, it was a bit, you know, my when I would do jokes about the government, it was about like I had this. I'm not going to do the bit because it's super awkward to do a bit one on one. That's fine. But yeah, to sure, describe yeah. the, the premise of the bit. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, just oh, people think, you know, there's people sort of government conspiracies. They think we're, you know, building aliens and hiding nanobots and stuff. It's like, we can't figure out the difference between reply and reply all. So <laughs> let's nail that down first. Yeah. So it's like that kind of premise about just basic competence. And I don't know, people had a sense of humor about it. They laughed with it. They rolled with it. They didn't, uh, I, I never got any, um, you know, missive from anyone saying, Hey, cool it down. Uh, and in off. fact, they would uh, they would have me do shows at the office parties around Christmas time. I would do for the different EPA offices. I would go around from office to office and do stand up, which were some of the most fondly remembered gigs of my entire <laughs> career. Is, is is the EPA a pretty loose place? Because I, I, from what I've I've heard, you know, through. Uh, uh, you know, friends of friends that work in certain agencies in DC is that they all kind of have their own personality that some are more straight laced, mm-hmm. some are more, uh, uh, free flowing. How would you describe the EPA? Oh God. If, if EPA is free flowing, then it's hard for me to even imagine how tight laced, you know, commerce or <laughs> <laughs> some of the other departments, because my impression was that it was extremely straight laced. I remember one year at a, yeah. at a, a, again, office holiday party, which was, <laughs> you know, it's like the party is two hours and then you go back to work. That's what the party is. Oh, and I remember geez. this year, un- unlike uh, other years, there was actually beer at this party. There was a cooler Uh-oh. full of beer at the party. And um, I remember myself and one of my coworkers, we were counting them up and we, it worked out to 1.2 beers per person. So <laughs> you, it was literally impossible to get a buzz on at that party. Um, and that's about as that's about as wild as EPA ever got. That's as that's experience. as nuts. That is that is the the craziest swinging from the chandeliers that the that, EPA that was really that was rock bottom for us. The next day we're like, whoa, that one point two beers yesterday. <laughs> Time to look in the mirror. You should have straight up yourself, and fly right, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, how long are you at the EPA? Uh, eight and a half years. Um, eight and a half years. Uh, yeah, about six of those in DC. And then uh, there's an EPA regional office in New York. So 
the last two in New York. Where does that rank in terms? Because that's this is the other uh, thing that that uh, the, the the trope with federal employment is that like nine years would be like oh wow real cup of coffee in and out huh uh, uh, <laughs> is that is is there truth to that? Um, yeah, for some people, yeah, some people are lifers. Some people are yeah. lifers. Um, uh, nine years is a pretty long time. I mean, it's true. It, it's not the most transitory job. Because yeah. you are sort of um, trading security for salary. Uh, yeah. It is true. You can't get fired, or at least you, it's all, it's almost impossible to get fired. You could do it if you were really trying. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is, you know, you don't make as much as you would um, in an equivalent private sector job. You know, we had a lot of people with like, you know, law degrees or PhDs or whatever, and they were making yeah. less than they would have in the private sector. But it'll never go away. Like it doesn't it'll never go away. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you can, you can yeah. do that. And then I guess, you know, have your macrame on Etsy or something and fulfill yourself yeah. that way. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So you go to New York at this point, I, I, I presume you are still doing uh stand up. Is that part of the reason right. that you, that you decamp from the comedy hotbed of DC to uh, yeah. this outpost in Manhattan? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. And actually, uh, I mean, you're joking about DC. I, I I do feel the need to stick up for oh, DC defend, a little bit. DC is a good, the, yeah, D, is, is a good a comedy good, town. Yes. I mean, you you I yeah. mean, you are right that it's not New York. You are right that it's yes. not New York. I mean, the 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 gigantic sea change is that there is quote unquote industry in New York. You can somebody can see you and you can yeah. uh, get an agent and things like that in New York. Whereas D, DC that doesn't exist. Um. So yeah, that that is why I made the move. But, but DC is a good comedy town. If you're in DC, there's like a lot of good standup. It punches those mid-sized cities: DC, Boston, Denver, Portland. They punch above their weight, partly because yeah. you don't have every uh, delusional dreamer in the country moving to your city and staking up, taking up stage time, as happens in New York and LA. Um, so it's, it's usually yes. just the people who are really, really into it that are like there to hone their craft. And and so you are you have a, a class of a, a better class of comedian that are local to that town. Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's two things. I, I think one, it is the psychology of the people who are doing it, because because you're right. You, you only do it if you love it. If there's no real chance that you're going to get discovered and make a career out of it, which pretty much yeah. is the case in every city except New York and L.A. And then the second thing is just numbers. It's just a numbers game because, you know, people will say, oh, New York, there are so many clubs, there are shows all the time. And, and yeah, there are. But there are so many comics. The, the ratio of comics to stage time in New York. <laughs> And, you know, L.A., though, I've never lived in L.A., but it's just ridiculous. It's just so hard to get stage time. I came up in D.C. and I could get like early on in my career. Yeah, I could get 20, 30, like good minutes. Good meaning like there were people in the audience. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and people who weren't other comics on the show. But I could get like 20, 30 minutes of stage time early. And then after I you know established myself a little bit more than that, New York man, it's tough. Even if you're established, I mean, unless, you know, not if you're a top guy, not if you're Jim Gaffigan or whatever, but like, sure. if you're kind of low mid level, you can go weeks in between shows in between wow. good shows anyway. So you're in, you're in New York and, and how uh, you said uh, there for, for, for three years before you wind up embarking on, on your, your, your next phase, which is yeah. comedy television. Last week. Yeah. Two, two years, actually. Two years. Sorry. Um, two years. In that two years, yeah, I was able to 
get into the universe of people who could submit a writer's packet for the daily show. Gotcha. So that's how John and uh, former daily show head writer, future last week tonight, executive producer, Tim Carvel became aware of who I am. That's how I got into the world where I could submit a packet for last week tonight. And so you get on there, which, uh, you know, even at, at, you know, when, when you first, how, how close to the beginning of the show were you there? Oh, the very beginning. I was, the I was very beginning. I was okay. in the, the original. Yeah. The original writer's room. And that yeah. was, you know, uh, John Oliver was super hot. And then and, and the idea of him, you know, like taking over the daily show was, was, was a conversation because it, it was close to mm-hmm. when John Stewart was going away. There's a lot of heat for this show. Even before it begins, it winds up kind of like uh, exploding almost immediately. But comedy writers rooms are something that much like the federal government has a bit of a reputation in terms of uh, uh, how things, how the sausage is made. And and sometimes it is not a, a flattering one that, that it is hard to, to mesh and, and, and there's nothing uh, uh, worse than a writer's room that is trying to sabotage each other so they can get their own jokes on. What was your experience there compared to any expectation? Oh, I should point out first that the you're right that both writers rooms and the federal bureaucracy have reputations, but they are complete opposite reputations, aren't yes. they? they one, yes. one is thought to be very, you know, staid and static and boring. And the other is, you know, you, you kind of described it as a viper pit, which from what I know about other writers rooms can be true sometimes. Uh, but luckily, you know, is one of the many ways I lucked out. I really didn't experience that at last week tonight. You think you do hear about, it's like you read the live from New York book and you hear about all the, you know, feuds SNL writers had about getting their stuff on and about how it's this very um, sort of, you know, cutthroat environment, uh, dog eat dog. Luckily it was really not that way at last week tonight. Of course you always want your stuff to get on. Yeah. Um, It's not like there were, you know, never any conflicts ever. But it was pretty collegial. It was pretty, there's sort of an understanding that, um, you know, you do your thing. I do my thing. Sometimes John's going to like your thing. Sometimes John's going to like my thing. Um, But it all, it all balanced out uh, well enough. And I really do have um, good memories of that time and and good relationships with the writer. You know, I still keep in touch with uh, most of them Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. You know, I I guess you you pointing out the SNL thing is is accurate that that especially for New York stuff that like that is the template is like all right everybody's mm-hmm. up till uh, uh, four o'clock in the morning yeah and, and everyone's and doing cocaine which was also not true at last yeah, night doing coke and uh, 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 just totally uh, uh, trying to to ruin any kind of uh, environment where somebody else's stuff would work. I guess the only thing that I would that I would worry or that I would I would wonder about your thing is that I would presume that a bunch of Daily Show alumni also came in and you would kind of be the new kid on the block. Oh, uh, no, you're actually not correct about that. Not there correct. Were no, okay. there were no daily show, uh, transfers. Nobody went from the daily show to last week's night. We were a brand new eight person writing staff. None of us were from the daily show. Oh, wow. Because it's kind of, it's, uh, that's kind of considered poaching and it's kind of not done. Gotcha. So all the daily show people stayed at the daily show, brand new writers room. Okay. You know, the exception being, John, of course, and yeah, the guy I mentioned before, Tim Carvel, who went from being head writer over there to EP at last week tonight. But all the writers were brand new. All the writers were brand new. Okay, so I guess that that also then then you are coming in on equal footing with everybody. And uh, uh, 
Yeah. Although, I mean, there were some, some people had better resumes than others. Uh, yeah. you know, one guy had written for totally biased with W come out bell. A couple of people were working from coming from the onion, which I really loved. One guy was ex Colbert, you know, so I, I was actually sort of like the doe eyed innocent in the room, you know, sort <laughs> who, of like had, fresh, had fresh off the hate to like, Oh, room. Hey, you know, good to me. I love the Colbert report. You know, I'm just happy <laughs> to be here in the room. Um, <laughs> myself and a couple others were like that. And then a few more were like, we got this. How fast did you guys, you know, get, get that DNA together of, of the kind of explainer thing? Because it really almost immediately sort of, uh, uh clicked on mm-hmm. that show and became such a, uh, an, an iconic element of political comedy. Uh, well, a, a big moment was the net neutrality piece, uh, which yeah. happened early ish in season one. And, uh, I remember before that piece, a lot of people were wondering, you know, is anyone going to watch the, you know, are people going to like this? This is weird. We're talking about a thing that's pretty in the weeds and, it's just like, is this something that's going to work on television? Does anyone care? But the piece went really well. And, yeah. um, and, and I will say I had very little to do with that piece. So when I compliment it, I'm not complimenting my own work. I'm complimenting <laughs> other writers' work. And um, it did well. We got a bit of a break in that um, we got all these headlines the next day. Because the end of the piece, uh, written by a writer named Jeff Haggerty, was that... Uh, it was, we were saying like, okay, the FCC has this comment period that's open. So every awful person on the internet, every Twitter troll, every horrible person on YouTube, go to the FCC site and comment, 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 tell your heart's content. And what happened is that a lot of people did and yeah. uh, the site crashed. What we later learned was that the site actually just kind of wasn't a very good website and yeah. it kind of crashed all the time. So it's true that a lot of people saw the show and went to the site, but it's maybe not so true that we summoned such an enormous mob that they actually crashed the site. It's kind of just a site that's prone to crashing, but it doesn't matter because we got all the headlines the next day that said, John Oliver crashes FCC site. And, and, and now we're back to the tropes of the federal government that aren't putting, uh, <laughs> putting things together well because their websites crash too fast, even when, when, it, when an HBO show mentions them. That's right. And it, and it also came uh, right on the heels um, of the uh, of the whole like Obamacare website rollout thing that had not gone oh, well. So, yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, federal website doesn't work uh, was a, a <laughs> narrative that was already in people's minds at that moment. Uh, but, yeah. So you were saying yeah, it became a thing that we do. Yeah, that was one of the big reasons because that piece went well. And we're like, all right, I guess there's a market for this, an audience yeah. for this. So we kind of kept doing them and people kept watching them. It's also sort of one of the uh, main reasons, like on my sub stack, I I try to get called. I might be wrong. I try to do a lot of that stuff. People seem to want it. People seem to want stuff explained, but in a, you know, funny way. Let me let me ask you this, because while I I think that last week tonight and and the Daily Show to a certain extent had kind of pioneered this idea of comedy is the news. Like that became a trope. The, there was like whatever uh, poll that said mm-hmm. that John Stewart was like the most trusted newsman of his generation. Sure. I remember that. And I, I've always been a little bit weird about that. Not from the sense of 
Oliver or Stewart, because I think their job is to do the funniest political comedy show that they can do. But what, from your perspective as somebody who's writing this, is the line between like, this is information that you should go forward with versus we're here for the jokes. Like, like this is supposed mm-hmm. to be a funny uh, a thing. Cause at a certain point you're not writing a long form journalism piece about this yeah. thing. You are doing a, a comedy show for you. What was the line? And, and do you think that there is kind of a cosmic line of, 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 of what the ratio needs to be? And, and do people take it too seriously? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and I'm glad you asked because I I do have a I do have an opinion on this one. So Good. often I'm like I don't you know I don't know it's it's a mixed bag. That's the type <laughs> of thing I say a lot. I got an actual opinion on this. Uh, first, I'll say that I'm I, I don't think I'm at all mischaracterizing the opinion of John Stewart or John Oliver, though. You know, I, I I'm I'm pretty certain I'm right about this. That both of them believe that. Shows like last week tonight, The Daily Show, should not be one's only source of news. People yeah. should not use those as primary news sources. I mean, I've certainly heard, you know, John in person and John Stewart, you know, in various forums say things along those lines. So I think that's a pretty firmly held belief that, you know, don't go to us instead of The New York Times. That is yeah. <laughs> that is not the way you should be consuming news. Um, but certainly, you know, these shows do exist in the news universe. And they certainly are uh, often part of a person's media diet. And in my opinion, it is, you know, that's that's the good space for these shows is part of your media diet. And the strong opinion that I have is that I, I think that shows that are talking about the news really do need to conform to journalistic standards. It's a weird situation because like people start out as comedians and then all of a sudden you're thrust in this situation where you know, like people are listening to you and, you know, yeah. what you say matters. And, you know, they sometimes even trust you on certain topics. So I think you really do need to accept, though I didn't sign up for this, I need to hold myself to journalistic standards. And I think a lot of these hosts do accept that. This isn't like a an idea I'm coming up with. I'm saying, you know, everyone in the industry should adopt this because nobody is. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, But, you know, you, you watch all the stuff that's on late night TV and it is a mixed bag. It is a mixed bag. You know, some of the some of the worst stuff, in my opinion, gets it gets pretty Fox Newsy, except left wing. Right. It's, uh, it's just kind yeah. of like, you know, because it's kind of garbage TV if you do it badly. Um, so, yeah, I do think you need to hold yourself to journalistic standards, even though you are still a comedy show. And I think that's. Last week tonight is both kind of the the the, the best uh, uh, because the quality is high, but the worst in that the imitators for it will be almost universally awful because like, uh, you know, when, when, when last week tonight does like their explainer stuff, it's always one of those things where like, if I don't know about it and I watch it, I'm like, this is great. This is amazing. Oh my God. These jokes are hilarious. And look at these facts. And then I'll watch one that I know a lot about. And much like yep. when you are you know, watching a movie about an industry that you, that, you know, uh, yeah. that you just know all the little things you're like, Oh, well, that's not real. That's not how yeah, they yeah, really yeah. do blah, blah, blah. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, you realize when you know a lot about it, you're like, Oh, this is a comedy show. And they're going to, they're yes. going to sand a few edges here and, and there just to make sure that this is the funniest possible segment that, that, that you can, that you can have. Uh, I think the problem lies not in the product, but rather in how serious some people take, uh, take it. Mm-hmm. And then again, like you mentioned the people that are like, Oh, explainers, 
let's just do explainers, but not do any of the journalistic uh, kind of work that goes into it and just write a, a sort of screed that is there to to pump nothing but frosting into the viewers' mouths because they just want confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. The, the quality of the piece really does have a lot to do with the quality of the uh, of the insight that you're getting. And if you're getting stuff wrong left and right, then it's it's not really any good, is it? And, and I, I want to be clear about something. I, I'm, I'm certainly, I am not saying that, you know, last week tonight did it right. And then everyone, then we had these imitators and they did it wrong. I, I don't want people to interpret it that way no. because I was, I am, I am largely so saying that for I'm, the record. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am largely so Jeffrey I, I, you know, I, saying uh, Jeffrey Mowers. <laughs> it's, it's nice. It's nice that, you know, I've been uh, gone from last week tonight for more than a year now. So I've got some perspective on it and I can even look yeah. back at, you know, stuff that I did on the show. And I'm like, oh, that was pretty good. I'm like, yeah, that was kind of crap. Um, you, you get enough separation from it that you can look at it in a more objective way. Uh, so I, I do recognize that it's a mixed bag. There's that phrase I promised you I would use. And um, <laughs> and it's it, when I speak about, you know, the good and the bad, I really am speaking about the good and the bad throughout the, you know, industry of late night as a whole. I am certainly not trying to say last week tonight was the gold standard and the imitators did it wrong. That is not not the message. No, don't worry. I think we all understand. Uh, okay. Now you are you are independent <laughs> and you are writing a a Substack, uh, which I think is just a a great uh, a, a diversity of voices now uh, uh, that that are able to kind of connect you know directly with the audience, which is passionate for me because uh, Patreon is the way I've I've lived my life, and I think that Substack is a great way that you can, if you're primarily a writer, I think it's just it makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, as as a platform, when you are now doing your own work, like is there any uh, uh, a difference in in terms of like the ratio of how funny you want to make something versus how much you wanted to make it more of a long form thing, which I think writing is kind of better suited for? Oh, that's a uh, uh, great question. I wouldn't say the difference is in the format because yeah. I think that's a place where John and I often saw eye to eye is like the info to jokes mix. Yeah. Um, I think we had similar instincts in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's great to not be edited. I'll tell you that. Ah. It's, great to, <laughs> it's great to just be able to write the piece 100% yourself. It's so freeing. I mean, what? here's a thing that's probably true for any job. I mean, yeah. my experience comes from being a speechwriter at EPA and then running for a TV show. But I think... Like, you know, certainly my wife would relate to this. I think a lot of people in a lot of jobs relate to the idea that if you get assigned something, if you're working on it, you know, you spend a lot of time with it. Mm -hmm. If I was writing an A story for last week tonight, we always used to say it was like writing a miniature PhD thesis in yeah. that you're, you're just stuck with it for a month and you, you know, learn about nothing except bail for a month yeah. and you read every article on it and you study up on it and you really have a lot of time to turn it over in your heads. So you know, that's the way it is when you're working on a thing. And then you give it to your boss and your boss looks at it for two hours and they make some big decisions. Yes. <laughs> and it can be kind of annoying because yeah. you kind of think, you know, I spent a month on this and I'm not denigrating your ability, but you spent two hours on it. So the good and the bad of Substack is that I'm just doing it all myself. So I'm sure it's true that my worst tendencies are amplified, but it's probably also true that my best tendencies are amplified. And I feel good about what I'm writing. I feel, I feel good about what I'm writing. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback, uh, which is good because it's free. So, you know, there's an, nice. I'm not getting money. The positive feedback is going to have to do. 
And um, yeah, it's very freeing to just be able to write. Wait, you're not you're not doing you're not doing the 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 subscription stuff. You're not doing any of the paywall stuff on it. At some point, far in the future, I will monetize this. But that Jeff, is what are well you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you? Well, all right, I'm just going to well, talk you, to you offline. I'm going to talk to you offline. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, uh, but in the meantime, everybody should sign up for it. Uh, uh, I might be wrong. Is the Substack? Uh, uh, Jeff Maurer was our guest today. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to let everybody know about? Um, no, I might be wrong. Is the thing? It's free. That's it. Perfect for free for now until mm-hmm. I convince him to start doing paywall stuff. <laughs> All right, man. Thank hey, you. Thanks so much. for having me on, man. I appreciate it. And that will wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank Mr. Maurer for coming on the show, you can head on over to px3guest.com. Our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live. Our podcast is at px3podcast.com, and you can get all of our merch at politicsmerch.com. Of course, you can support us with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. Our cash app is px3cash. And of course, if you want to submit your own evidence for our ongoing experiment as to whether or not Venmo money is real, you can send me your your sample, your evidentiary sample of money to justin-young-20. That is justin-young-20. And... I'll, I'll, I'll see. When it gets to me, I'll, I'll see if it's not real. So far, all the Venmo money has not been real. But if you want to keep trying to send it to me, let me know. You can also send me anything physical in the mail, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And, of course, you can get bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Steven, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D, Really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quincey, Anile III, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Charles, Olin and Angela, D-L, Miranda, Janelle, Persons familiar with the matter. Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, Will, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Very simple. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 level. You guys make the world go round. Special episode next. That is our Dana Carvey episode. It's evergreen, so uh, uh, if anything massive happens, I'll throw a news update in the feed. But otherwise, you guys will next hear from me in full 
comedy nerd mode. I cannot wait. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.